Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The text of the Word of God reads as such. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This morning, we're very blessed to have Pastor David Forsyth this morning. He is the pastor of Foothill Bible Church in Upland, California, and the father of uh, Jessica Pranitis and the father-in-law of Simon, who have been here since the beginning of this year. We're very blessed to have him. He is a graduate of the Master's Seminary, I believe in 2001, and uh, has uh, his wife Carol and other extended family here. He is the father of four children and 12 grandchildren. So he is, I'm sure, very busy as uh, the church ministry there has much to do, and we're blessed that he can come as he visits his uh, his grandchildren here, his family, to open the Word of God this morning. Let's give him a warm welcome. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you this morning. And uh, I've uh, gotten to know your pastor just a little bit. Met him in January when we were helping uh, Simon and Jessica and their family move out here, and we visited with you folks on a Sunday and had a really delightful time together and had the opportunity to break bread with Pastor Joe uh, that Sunday evening and get to know his heart a little bit. And so when he contacted me with the opportunity to come and to, and to preach to you, I was delighted uh, for such, a, uh, such an opportunity. It's a privilege to stand in another man's pulpit and to open the Word of God. And that's what I want to do with you this morning. And so uh, without further ado, let's uh, go ahead and do that and uh, you're there, I believe, in Romans chapter 2, and so you can stay there because that's where I'm going to be. And uh, let, us, uh, let us hear from the Word of God this morning in this great chapter. The title of the message for you this morning is The Danger of Growing Up Christian. The Danger of Growing Up Christian. A couple of years ago, the Barner Group released the results of a survey, and it's a study in which they claim that 59% of teens, and this is their words, discontinue either permanently or for an extended period of time from church life after age 15. So the Barner Group says, according to their survey, 59% of teenagers disconnect either permanently or for an extended period of time from church life after the age of 15. 
Now, I, I don't know how accurate that survey was. I'm not qualified to, to render a verdict in such things. But I do know this. There is probably no greater grief for a parent's heart than when their children, raised in the church, turn away from those things that are most important in the lives of mom and dad. It brings incredible heartache into a family, and I have experienced those things close up as in the years that I've pastored among God's people and sat across the table with crying parents and talked about their children and had them pour out their hearts and, um, and prayed for their kids, that they might uh, remember the things they've been instructed and, and turn their hearts back to the Lord. When I uh, graduated uh, from college, I graduated in 1979 from the University of Massachusetts, and I graduated with a degree in finance. And uh, graduating, I entered a career in banking, and I entered through the audit department. And so in the early years of my banking career, I was a traveling auditor. And uh, for a kid who grew up in a, in a small town, uh, it, was, uh, it was wonderful. It was a kind of a heady thing to be traveling all over the country, being flown here, there, and everywhere, to have an expense account, to stay in hotels, to eat meals out at restaurants um, morning, noon, and night, to be able to order steak every night of the week if I wanted to, and indeed I did, and I did. Um, But you know what? After a while, it got really old. It got really old. In fact, it got to the place where I would rather come home to uh, a bowl of macaroni and cheese that my wife would have prepared than a filet mignon at a a fine steakhouse. There's a saying that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Familiarity breeds contempt. I know when I started at the Master's Seminary, one of the things that they warned us about was that we would be handling the Word of God on a regular basis in an academic environment. That is, we would be studying the Word of God. And the warning that they gave to us was that in that environment, there is a danger that the Bible begins to become merely an academic text. Something to be pulled apart and analyzed and, and, and then put back together again. But, but purely in an academic way and in the process of that, of that close contact with the Word of God, uh, one can lose the reality that this is the Word of the living God. And that it has been given to us by inspiration that it might lead us in the path of righteousness. That it might take us to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, that it might show us the glory of the resurrected Christ, the only way of salvation. And so I took those warnings to heart and uh, worked very hard to, to preserve my spiritual health in the midst of a rigorous academic understanding. And you know, these kinds of lessons about familiarity, breeding, contempt, about about becoming uh, sort of blasé towards the Word of God uh, can, can be a danger for those who are growing up in the church where the Word of God is, is taught every Sunday in Sunday schools and in, and in the preaching service. 
The Word of God is, is constantly front and center. And, and children growing up in that environment, they, they know the Word of God. At, at least they know the Bible stories and, and can probably recite them from heart. They have memorized, some of them, great portions of the Word of God. And yet the danger is that it is never penetrated into their hearts. It remains, uh, if I can say it this way, an academic exercise for them. They have never personalized the reality that the message of God is to them and to, to help them to see their need of salvation and that there is deliverance in no one else but Christ and Him alone. They need to make a personal faith commitment to Jesus Christ. They, they're not going to get into heaven on the coattails of mom and dad's faith. And it, and it sort of reminds me, I think, of the, of the situation with the Jewish people in the first century. The Jewish people in the first century were guilty, to a large degree, of, of relying upon their morality, upon their, their religious tradition, upon their circumcision for their right standing before God. And I believe that's a, that is a, a similar danger to children growing up in, in Christian homes. And that is the danger to, to substitute external things for the life-changing encounter with the living God. And so from the text uh, before us this morning in Romans chapter 2 and in verses 1 through 5, I want to look with you at three dangers. Three dangers involved in growing up Christian. Three dangers involved in growing up Christian. Why? So that we will recognize that even good kids need Christ. Even good kids need Christ. Paul, writing here in Romans, lays out his, his most complete, his most systematic, his most thorough presentation of the gospel. In fact, later in the book, he calls it my gospel. This is, if you're looking for a place to know what did the Apostle Paul believe, what did the Apostle Paul teach, he was sent all over the Mediterranean world, planting churches everywhere he went. What was his mechanism? What was his message? It is here for you in the book of Romans. It is a thorough, it is a complete presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins in chapter 1. In verse 16, by, by telling us that, that Paul, not ashamed of this gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, he says. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is in the gospel which we find the power of God in order to save. And then Paul begins to systematically present that gospel. And as you know, gospel means good news. But the good news begins with bad news. And the bad news is, is that we are alienated from our Creator. And so Paul is going to demonstrate that reality. And like a very skillful uh, prosecuting attorney, he, he makes his case, he builds his case, until in, there in chapter 3 he will say, There is none righteous, no, not one. But he begins in chapter 1 by bringing, as it were, the Gentile world before the bar of God's justice. 
and he presents his accusation against them. He builds his case. And he says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them. And then he begins to go on and explain why. And and the basic answer why is, is because they have rejected what can be known about God from the creation all around them and have instead substituted idols of their own making. They serve and worship the creation rather than the creator. And that has led them into all sorts of wickedness. And then, and then Paul begins to catalog the wickedness. In chapter 2, he turns from dealing with the Gentile world, the Greeks, if you'd like, and he, and he turns to his own people. In Paul's mind, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are the Jews and there are the Gentiles. And so having dispensed with his, his case against the, the, uh, the Gentiles, he turns to his own people, the Jewish people, in chapter 2, and he begins to build out his case there, leading him to that conclusion, there is none righteous, no, not even one. And so here in chapter 2, turning to the Jewish people, we find the first danger that I want to look at with you this morning. And I call this the danger of condemning others. In verse 1, the danger of condemning others. Paul says, therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Notice he begins chapter 2 with a therefore. We've taught our people when we see the word therefore, they're to ask the question, what is it therefore? And that is, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a grammatical marker for, to, to summarize, to draw a conclusion, and to point you backwards into the text from which the conclusion is drawn. And so in this case, it connects the Paul's thought at the, towards the end of chapter 1 with, with the next phase of his argument here in chapter 2. And essentially it's this. If I can just boil this uh, verse down for you, it would be this. What Paul says is to the Jewish people, because it is established that the immoral practices of the Gentiles are an abomination to God, and that's the basic message of verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, therefore... Whoever does them is without excuse when they practice the same evils that they condemn in others. That's his argument. That's his argument. God has rendered his verdict in chapter 1. It is an abomination. And then he turns and he says, Therefore, you have no excuse if you do the very same thing that you would condemn others doing. What are those things? The things that God condemns here in Verses 18 to 32. Paul says, verse 32, chapter 1, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul says the state of the Gentile world, apart from Christ, is such that they know sin is wrong, the moral law of God written in their hearts, made in his image. They know sin is wrong, but they say it is right. They, they flip God's morality, and they say that sin is right and good, not just for themselves, but for everyone else, and they encourage others to, to follow after them. 
as they run from God. That's the state of the unbelieving Gentile world. But in 2.1, turning to the Jewish people, he says something a little different. He says that the Jewish people, they know sin is wrong. And they say it is wrong. But they do it anyway. They do it anyway. The Gentiles know it's wrong. Say it's right. Encourage others to participate. The Jewish people are guilty because they know it's wrong. They say it's wrong. But they do it anyway. And the question one might ask themselves is, which is worse? Which is worse? God's answer would be, they are both enough to separate you from him. To to find yourself under his judgment and wrath. In fact, in the very act, Paul says here in in verse 1, in the very act of, of condemning others, the Jewish people condemn themselves. Because they are, they are habitually practicing, that's the, that's the verb tense here, they are, they are habitually practicing the very same behaviors that they are condemning in other people. Now Jesus warned about this kind of behavior, that the danger of having a, a spirit of condemning other people. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, in verses 1 through 5, and I'll just read it for you. Jesus says there, do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What Jesus is talking about, what Paul is talking about here in in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1, is a spirit of of hypocritical, self-righteous condemnation of other people. At the same time, covering up our own faults. Looking to condemn others at the same time, ignoring the reality of our own fault. One person said, uh, we are prone to measure others by our own measuring rod that has no flexibility. For them, that is, but tremendous elasticity for us. No flexibility for them, tremendous elasticity for us. It kind of reminds me, I'm... uh, I'm working at trying to lose a couple of pounds here, and I went to the doctor, and he put me on his scale, and uh, I think the thing must be wrong because uh, it couldn't possibly register what it does, but it does, or did. And uh, sort of that's the doctor's scale, right? It's rigid, it's inflexible, whatever, you know, I want to empty my pockets, take off my shoes, you know, whatever it takes, and uh, you, you get on it, and they write the number down, and you're stuck with it. It goes in your chart, you know what I'm saying? But I've got a, I've got a bathroom scale. And it's a great bathroom scale because depending where I put it on the floor and step on it, you know, I can move the needle a couple of pounds. And so it's, it's, a, it's a feel-good bathroom scale. And I, and I think that, that sort of speaks to the way we approach things. When we approach others, we, we have the doctor's scale. It's, it's, it's inflexible. It's rigid. Whatever, you know, we just call it out. And then we look to our own and we've got that elasticity, right? We kind of have the fudge factor. And Paul is saying, listen, uh, God hates 
that kind of heart, that kind of approach. You know, it's really easy, really easy, folks, to grow up in a, in a sheltered Christian environment with parents who, who are serious about God's holiness and still fall prey to this indictment. If the focus of our parenting is on external behaviors, we begin to define holiness in terms of the things we don't do, the places we don't go, the things we don't see. And that slowly begins to to come around to the idea that, that we're holy because of what we don't, and such and such are not holy because of what they do. And eventually, that approach leads one to to begin to look down on others, to look down on them, to, to, to see their sin, to see their shortcoming. At the same time, guilty ourselves of of the same kinds of sin. I mean, Paul lays out a pretty extensive vice list here, if you like, right, in in chapter 1. Notice verse 29, he says, They're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, right? Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. We can all find ourselves there. We can find ourselves there. Such a danger. Very, very subtle, very easy to begin to see lost people not as God sees them. Made in His image in need of a Savior to be reconciled to God and begin to see them as as the enemy. The enemy of our home. We We must keep our children away from such evil. And so we begin to wall off the world. We begin to wall off the world. The problem is we we wall evil in. Right? Newsflash. Sin originates not from the environment. Sin originates where? In the heart. In the heart. When When you bring that cute little one into the world. Jonathan Edwards would say to you, what a cute little viper. Right? What a cute little viper. One only has to uh, work in the nursery one time (laughs) to see the murder in those little eyes, right? (laughs) Take my toy and you'll find out. You'll find out. Yeah. Listen, the, the Jews of Paul's day, they viewed the Gentiles as defiled. They viewed the Gentiles as dangerous. They viewed the Gentiles as, as people to be avoided rather than to be loved. And it's easy to fall into that same trap. And the way we fall into it is by minimizing our own sin and maximizing theirs. And that leads us to developing a, a critical and condemning spirit. One writer says, nothing blinds a person more to the certainty then only others are guilty of moral faults. Nothing blinds a person more to the certainty that others are guilty of moral faults than to maximize on their 
shortcomings and minimize our own. How do we know when we're falling into that kind of trap? How do we, how do we know what's a self-diagnostic to, to see, you know, am I developing a critical and, and hypocritical spirit in all this? I think, I think here's a good question to ask ourselves. And that is, it is this. When we, when we see someone involved in sin, what is our first thought? It is, a, is it condemnation or is it compassion? Is it condemnation or compassion? Because, because our first thought towards that Maybe, maybe you're, you're driving down the road and, and you see someone walking along and, and, and they bear in their body the marks of a, of, a, of a troubled life, right? What do you think? Do you think to yourself, that's somebody's little boy. That's somebody's little girl. Or do you think, look at that person. What is wrong with them? The answer to that question will reveal a lot about how you view your own sin and the sin of others. So the first danger is condemning others. Second, the second danger is the danger of scorning God. The danger of scorning God. And it's in verses 2 through 4. And Paul says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Paul is going to develop his argument here, and he's going to build a rhetorical argument. And he begins by, by eliciting the agreement of his audience. The agreement of the Jewish readers here. They're, they're going to agree that God is absolutely right and just in punishing the wickedness that Paul has described here in chapter 1. You can just see it. Uh, you know, the, the, the Jewish people, they would read this and they say, well, of course. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on such people. But then Paul is going to turn that common consensus back upon them. And he's going to do it here in a a series of three rhetorical questions. He's going to to ask three rhetorical questions here. And they're they're designed to reveal that the Jewish thinking actually scorns the very God whom they say they love. And the first one begins here in verse 3. And he says, And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? The word uh, suppose, English word suppose here, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Greek, it, it carries the idea of, of calculating or, uh, or estimating and uh, figuring out the odds, if you like. And so Paul's first rhetorical question here is, is essentially this. He says, do you of all men, that is, that is a, a Jew who knows that God rightly judges sin, do you of all men think that you have figured out all the angles to the point where somehow you can evade God? How silly. How silly it is. Second. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? He asks him another question, just a a follow-on question. And it's it's this. He, He says, are you not... By your hypocritical involvement in the, in the very same sins that you condemn in others, are you not holding the kindness and the tolerance and the, and the patience of God in contempt? He expects them to answer yes. Now when he says, um, or do you think here in, in verse 4, he's not, he's not suggesting an alternative line of, of, of uh, inquiry here. He's building it's a building. 
He's just building these rhetorical questions. He's after one thing. He, he wants to strip away the veneer of self-righteousness that they have wrapped themselves in based upon their external compliance. And so in crescendo-like fashion, he is, he is building his case. He's stripping it away. The riches, the word, the word riches here, right? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and, and patience? The, the word riches actually governs all three of these benefits that, that God has given to the Jewish people. All of them, they are riches. God's kindness is, is rich. His tolerance is rich. His, his patience is rich. And what Paul is getting at here is he wants to, to, to express the idea that, that God has suspended the, the infliction of the punishment due and has restrained the execution of his wrath. He, he does not, if we can say it this way, he does not settle the books. He does not close the books. He does not balance the books at the end of every day. I told you, I was an auditor, right? At the end, you know, if you finish an audit, man, the debits and the credits, they've got to equal. Or you've got to do it all over again. God doesn't balance out the books at the end of every day. He doesn't punish every sin the instant it occurs. And, and people take this and, and run with it. They, they get used to God's tolerance. They get used to God's goodness. And they begin to take it for granted. And they fail to consider the reality that, it, that it's only because of His mercy and His grace that we are not immediately destroyed. Do you remember what God said to Adam? In the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely what? Die. You shall surely die. Okay? Adam was cut off from God. He died spiritually in that moment. The process of physical death began in him and to all his heirs. People trade on the mercy of God. That's what Paul's after here. He's after the understanding that, we, listen, we trade on the mercy of God. We, we regularly flaunt his law and we, we defame his character. And, and when, when God doesn't bring about punishment immediately, we think, okay, well, so far, so good, right? It's kind of like the guy who fell out of a 30-story building. And in, in about halfway down, now someone leans out the window and said, how you doing? He said, so far, so good. Right? And that's, that's kind of our approach. It's kind of our approach. And, and we know this is true because, because when, the, when the wrath of God comes on someone, they react with, with shock. They act with, with shock. They're horrified that something like that could happen. You remember Jesus in, in Luke chapter 13 and verses 1 through 5, he, he addresses this very issue. It says, now on the same occasion, there, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to him, do you suppose that these Galileans were, were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the, the tower in Salom fell and, and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Jewish people are, are treading on the mercy of God. And they're assuming that God is happy with them because he has not brought consequence for their disobedience. 
To think lightly here. Do you th- verse 4. Do you think lightly is, it, is the idea to underestimate the significance of something. And it's ultimately to, to despise it. It's ultimately to scorn it. And the God who gives the good gifts. Kind of think of it this way. Birthday times in our family are, are a time for gift giving. We give birthday gifts. And what would it be like if, if uh, you were to... You were to give a birthday gift, and uh, the person were to take it and unwrap it and look at it, and then pull the trash can over and drop it in. What would that say? Right? That would be, that would be scorning the gift. It would be thinking lightly of the gift. But, but it would be beyond, be beyond the gift. It would go to the gift giver. It would be to scorn the gift giver. To despise that person. And that's exactly Paul says what the, what's going on here. To, to think lightly of these things is to, is to scorn the very God who gives them. Now he says, verse 4, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It's not ignorance here. He's not talking about ignorance. What he's really doing is he's sort of expanding his indictment here. And, and the idea of not knowing is the idea of not considering. It's the idea of not considering. And so really the third rhetorical question is kind of built into this. And it's this. Don't you realize, do you not know, do you not consider, don't you realize that in withholding punishment, God is seeking to lead you to repentance? God has a purpose in his kindness toward people. And the, and the purpose in God's kindness is not to excuse their sin, but to stimulate their repentance. Now, what is repentance? A repentance is a complete and, and full change of mind and heart, which leads to a change of behavior, right? It is to turn from sin and turn toward God. Why is God merciful? Why is God kind? Why is God patient and tolerant? It is to stimulate repentance. It's amazing, I think. And ultimately condemning that, that these people, the people of God, the ones who are, who are the custodians of the oracles of God, Paul will say, they've had the scripture, the Jewish people have willfully refused to recognize the fact that, that God's goodness towards them gives them both opportunity and a summons to repent and come to him. But they're blinded. They were blinded. They were, they were blinded into believing that the, the Gentiles were the ones that needed to repent, not them. God's gracious dealing with his people, it should have taught them about his kindness. It should have taught them about his patience. It should have drawn them to him in love. And, and instead they see perversely, they see his blessings and, as something they deserve. A measure of their favored status, their, their moral uprightness. They, they took which was the, the, the mercy and gift of God and they, and they turned it into a right of inheritance. The very purpose of God's kindness, the very purpose of God's forbearance, the very purpose of God's patience is not to make us self-satisfied, but to bring us to conversion. To bring us to conversion. When uh, reflecting on your life, and I hope you do that from time to time, and, and in reflecting on your life, if, if you recognize there, are, there is a particular vice that, that, 
that you have not partaken of. I hope you recognize that's nothing to brag about. That is nothing to brag about. It, it is merely an outworking, an expression of the mercy, kindness, patience, and tolerance of God in your life. That he has held you back from these things. I hope you understand that the absence of vice is not the possession of virtue. The absence of vice is not the possession of virtue. Listen, young people, young people, listen to me. You have experienced the kindness of God. You have experienced it. By the, by the grace of God, His tolerance towards you, His kindness towards you, His patience towards you has been repeatedly demonstrated. He has placed you in a family where Christ is loved, where you are cared for, where you are exposed to the Word of God. And yet for some of you, your Christianity consists of an external, hypocritical approach to the Savior. You judge others while you simultaneously engage in the exact same behaviors. If not in action, at least in mind. And the only thing that holds back the action is the very mercy of God. Listen to me. If that's your approach to Christianity, you're not a child of God. You're not saved. You need the gospel it needs to, to come and, and clean out your heart. You need to recognize that, that you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. You need to flee to the cross of Christ. For moms and dads, I don't think there's anything more difficult to face than, than the reality that maybe our children aren't really saved. Maybe they've been baptized. Maybe they've grown up in the church. Maybe they've gone on missions trips. Maybe they've, they've gone door-to-door evangelism. Maybe they've, they've you know, memorized the entire New Testament. You, you, know, you name it. There are many things that, that they could do and not be redeemed. And it's a hard reality to think about. And it's harder still if, if, we're, in a, if we're in a Christian environment in, in which there's... There's a pressure, sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle, to parent to the externals, to, to want our families and our children to look good. Just don't embarrass me. Just don't embarrass me. We get it all together, crafted nicely on the outside, and while they're young, we can sort of keep it together. But as they grow... We begin to find out that, that Christ never really had their hearts. Terrible, terrible tragedy. We've got to face reality. Wishful thinking doesn't help here. James Boyce uh, writes in his commentary on Romans, he says, Jesus does not excuse us, he forgives us. He calls us sinners. Yet he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The most important thing in life is to know that Jesus is able to save you from sin. The second most important thing to know is that you require it. Couldn't have said it better. 
We need gospel parenting. We need, a, we need a Christian church that practices gospel parenting. That is, that, that we are after the heart of the child. We're after the heart. We are after that which, which, from which all behavior, all, uh, all speech flows. If we parent only to the externals, we'll never reach the heart. We're interested in motives. Why does my child do what they do? And how do I bring the gospel to bear when they sin? This is a place where, where the body of Christ can really, really help and encourage one another. Oh, I need to move on here. The danger of condemning others, the, the danger of scorning God. Third and finally here before I get kicked out, the uh, danger of impenitence. The danger of impenitence. Paul finishes it here. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is no more fearful verse, I don't think, anywhere in the scriptures. Stubbornness. The Greek word translated stubbornness here is the root of the English word sclerosis, hardness. What Paul says here is, is their stubbornness, and, and he speaks of this stubbornness here, it should have evoked in them the ancient memories of the rebelliousness of their own nation, the, their time in the wilderness, right? Their hardness of heart toward God. Do you remember Exodus 19? And, uh, and the people tell Moses to report to God, listen, all that the Lord has said we will do. You remember that? That was the high point, by the way. Because <laughs> it wasn't long after that that they're making a golden calf. Stubbornness, hardness of heart. Three times the writer of the Hebrews warns about hardening one's heart to God. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Same chapter, Hebrews 3, verses 13 and 5 to 15. But, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Finally, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Listen, hardening one's heart to God is a dangerous activity. It is a dangerous place to be. Every time the truth of God is presented to us, either orally or, or in written form, we, we make a response. We always make a response. We either turn toward God in, in, a, in a humble heart and, and seek after Him, or we put our proverbially fingers in our ears and we block Him out and we turn away from Him and we begin to develop a layer of callous around our heart. We begin to develop a hardness of heart. Every time, every Sunday you're here, every time you're in Sunday school, young people, something's happening. You're not neutral in this matter. You are moving towards Christ or you are moving away. 
Truth resisted develops a a thickening shell around our heart and, and it makes it even more difficult the next time to receive truth. The military uses Kevlar as part of their bulletproof vest. And, and Kevlar is, uh, is made by densely uh, weaving fabric together that, that individually uh, you know, would never stop shrapnel. But when, but when woven together in a dense fabric, it's, it's able to protect the vital organs of a soldier or a police officer. And, and our hearts can act in the same way. We, we can build Kevlar around our hearts as we reject the word of God. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 21 to 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He is speaking about the Pharisees the most religiously accomplished people of the first century. They were the pinnacle of what it meant to be a Jew. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. If you haven't heard anything else, hear this. Just because God is not judging immediately, it does not mean that his wrath is not accumulating. Do not be deceived. It is like water building behind a great dam. And the pressure is building. And someday, in the day of wrath, he says, the, the dam will burst. And you'll be swept away in the deluge. Every minute, the mountain of God's wrath grows against those who hear his word and turn away from it. May God in his mercy and grace grant you ears that hear and a heart to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, hard message this morning, a message of confrontation, a message designed to, to peel back the veneer of, of religious civility that is so easy to construct around the human heart. Our Father, the Jews were a master of it in the first century, and, and we in the Christian church have become skilled apprentices. Oh, so easy to settle for the externals. And Father, in the area of parenting, this is a trap that many fall into. But God, by your mercy and grace, may you deliver your people. May you show yourself powerful today among us by opening the eyes of the blind, that they might see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and flee to his cross for redemption. We ask these things in his name. Amen. God bless you, beloved.